We are gonna talk about the power of God today to save uh, from circumstances in our lives. And so I wanna pray for us, and I wanna pray specifically for those of you who right now are waiting for God to bring that deliverance. Like you're waiting and it seems to be like you've been waiting a long time. And I wanna pray for you specifically, for all of us that would be prepared and receive God's word. But specifically, I just have, I just want you to hear me say as your pastor, I have this particular place of tenderness in my heart towards those of you who you've been waiting a long time. Uh, and so even as we think about the power of God to save and the need to believe in that power, um, I want this to be an encouragement to you. Um, and I, I want it to encourage you to, to come back again to remember that God has power to save and trusting in that, it, it matters. It matters very much. And I, I wait with you in my own life for some things that I've been asking God for for quite some time. Um, and I will continue to wait. Uh, I don't wanna wane in my belief that God has the power to bring deliverance to those things. I wanna grow in that belief even as I wait. And I want that for you too. So can I pray for us? That God would do that and then we'll, we'll dive into our text today. So Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we thank you that you keep repeating this theme for us of your power to save. It's everywhere throughout scripture, just again and again. And I trust that that's true because you and your perfect wisdom know we need to hear it again and again. And so as we make our way through uh, the the text of First and Second Kings, we thank you that we find it here again today. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would, in great tenderness, send your spirit to bring your word to bear upon our lives. And you'd enable us to receive it. Our job is to yield before you, our good and gracious king. Every part of your word is without error. Every part of your word is true. It is rightly delivered and well-timed. And so give us ears to hear and eyes to see today. And would you... Um, Lord Jesus, allow me to be your vessel today so that your word would go forth to your people and they'd be blessed by it. Thank you that it does not return without bearing fruit. It will not. You have promised it will not. And so we trust in that now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, last week, if you were with us, George uh, did a, just an excellent job uh, and I hope you got to hear that just helping us reflect on the three chapters before the three chapters we're gonna look at today and how they, how they spoke to the multifaceted mercy of God. I mean, how broad and wide and, and deep the mercy of God is and how it goes in all these different directions and, and that was really rich. And so this week, if last week we were focused on mercy, this week we are focused on God's power to save and we're taking another three chapter unit here. Uh, and so here's the kind of big idea is this, is that these chapters invite us to see and to believe and trust in the fact that God has power to save. Now, when I say that, if you've been around church, if you even just believe in God, maybe it's your first time in church ever, but you believe God exists, there's probably some part of that definition of who God is that you would recognize, yes, of course he has that power. In a theoretical way, you believe that. But my point when I say there's an invitation in the text to us today to believe in the power of God to save, it's that we would move from the theoretical to the functional. Is that we would actually believe and live like God has power to save. And we're gonna see in these stories that we're gonna read today, and we've got some big chunks of stories to cover. We're gonna see that God is speaking that to us, that he wants us to live and make decisions like we believe that. Is that fair enough, yes? So we wanna get, in fact, this is most of the Christian life is get out of the theoretical and into the functional. We wanna get what we believe down into our actions, down into our emotions, down into the choices that we make, into our relationships. We want functionally for Jesus to be operating in that way. So here, if I had to illuminate this through one, at the risk of using a story to illustrate a story, uh, a couple of stories, 
there's a great story in the Old Testament that actually comes after this one uh, in, in our, if you're reading through the Old Testament. It's from the book of Daniel. How many of you remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if, you've, if you're familiar? And some of you, maybe if it's your first time in church, you may, you may even have heard the story. It's a pretty famous one. But if you haven't, here's the gist of it, all right? There are three servants of God. They've been taken into exile in a foreign land. And there's a king, Nebuchadnezzar, who makes a statue and says, everyone's got to bow down to the statue. And these three servants of God, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, refuse to bow down. And they know the consequence for that is to be thrown into a fiery furnace. And so the king brings them before him, and they're actually servants of the king. They, they serve him in a certain capacity and way. And there's a great line in the story that illuminates really the lesson of the three chapters we're looking at today. It's in Daniel 3, 16 through 18. Listen to the words as the king says to them, I'm gonna throw you in this furnace if you don't bow down and worship the statue of me that I have made. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Do you hear the conviction and the power of God to save? Do you hear it? But look at what comes next. But if not, in other words, if he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. That is an imperfect, a perfect encapsulation of the lesson that we're going to learn today, and it's this, is that God has power to deliver, and we are called to believe in that power. But even should he not deliver in the timing or in the way that we would hope, we will maintain our belief in his power and our commitment to follow him. That's the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and it really is the story for us, and it's the story of these passages that we're going to look at. You know, like I said, now let me, let me start with a little bit of a why here. Because even as you think about that story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you're gonna look at the stories that we're gonna look at today, the thing I wanna help you understand is why it's so important to believe in God's power to deliver even while we might still be waiting on seeing that power bring that deliverance about. Why is that important? And let me give you this very simple statement. It is far better to believe and be convicted in God's power to save and to have that belief disappointed for a season, maybe even for our entire lives, than it is to reap the fruit of unbelief. The fruit of belief disappointed is better for you than the fruit of unbelief in the power of God. And here's why I say that, because sometimes what we do is, in a, and it's probably more, passive than it is active in us, as we wait for God to deliver, and he does not, and we wait, and we wait, one of the ways that we subtly in our minds and our hearts try and let God off the hook is that we diminish his power to save. We stop reminding ourselves of it. We stop placing hope in it because one, the weight of keeping, keep getting disappointed, where we keep getting disappointed, that feels too, like too much for us and there's a part of us that wants to let God off the hook by lessening our sense of conviction about his power. And what I wanna tell you, friends, is that that's a dangerous road to walk down because the fruit of that unbelief is worse, is worse than actually the sweet fruit, the godly fruit, the good fruit of belief that is disappointed for a time. Let me tell you what I mean by that. If you look at Hebrews chapter 11, I'm not gonna go there and read all the text to you, but Hebrews chapter 11 
it's this, you know, we often kind of sort of in a, in a sort of kitschy way, we call it the hall of faith, right? Where it's this, it's these stories of these believers before Christ who place their faith in God's delivering power. And it talks about all these amazing acts of perseverance and deliverance that they experienced. And, but one of the ways that chapter ends or the way that chapter ends is to say this, every single one of those people, even the ones that experienced a temporary deliverance, died without seeing the promise of God in which they believed come to fulfillment. It says every one of them, Moses, Jacob, I mean, the whole list, Abraham, they all died without seeing the full fulfillment of the promise that they were waiting on. And it says the fruit of that in their lives, the fruit of that belief that they were convicted of God's power and seeing it, it was going to come and they died before they ever saw it. And it says the fruit of that was a couple things. The fruit of it was they had eyes to see Christ even before he ever lived, to identify with him and understand him. That's one of the fruits of belief disappointed. Another fruit of belief disappointed is they understood they were strangers and exiles, it says. I think that's verse 12 of chapter 11. They understood in a, in a far greater way that this is not our home. I am a stranger and an exile here. That's one of the fruits. There's fruit of, and let me just say this, both of those things, both, both belief in the power of God that is disappointed for a temporary, in a temporary way and unbelief, they both produce brokenness. Both of them do. The first produces brokenness that leads to humility and dependence and therefore godliness. The second produces brokenness that leads to hopelessness and bitterness. Brokenness is coming. The question is, what will it produce? And belief, even disappointed for a time, produces rich fruit. Do you see why it's so important? I want for you as I want for myself while we linger and wait for the delivering power of God, I want for you the fruit of that belief. And I want you to not have the fruit of that unbelief, bitterness, anxiety, fear. To diminish your sense of the power of God only is to bring, it's to invite hopelessness, more anxiety, more fear. It does not produce any good fruit, none. But belief, even disappointed as hard as that can feel, produces good fruit in the end. Do you hear me, church? That's our why, okay? That's why this is important. So now let's look at the stories, okay? We're gonna look at four stories. A couple I'm gonna read in full, a couple I'm gonna summarize for you. But again, these chapters invite us to see and believe in God's power to save. And as we look at it, we're going to see the markers of those who believe in his power to save and then the markers of those who don't. And obviously we want to be like those who do. We don't want to be like those who don't. So we're gonna learn some lessons from that. But here's a great gift. Before we ever get to our focus on God's power to save, before he ever does, before he gets us there, the first thing he's gonna do in this section is he's going to tell us one simple thing that helps us be ready for the message about his power. He's gonna tell us he cares. He's gonna tell us he loves us. And let me just say, I'm not sure any of us is ready to receive the message about his power until we can receive the message about his care. Let me show you how he does that. In 2 Kings chapter 6, first seven verses, look at them with me. Great little story here. It says this, now the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, see the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. 
let us go to the Jordan and each of us get there a log and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, go. Then one of them said, be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his ax head fell into the water and he cried out, alas, my master, it was borrowed. Then the man of God said, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. Are we all aware iron doesn't float because you throw sticks in the water, yes? Don't go try this later today. You're probably gonna lose your ax. And he said, take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. Now, this is so interesting. Let me tell you what's interesting. The placement of this story is as important as the content of the story. And here's what I mean. In this section of three chapters, in the middle of them, the two stories we're gonna see are national level events. They are massive armies. They are chariots of fire. They are massive movements of the hand of God. I mean, really kind of big thunderclap kind of change the course of human history kinds of events, yes? And on either side of those two huge stories, there are these two tiny stories about individuals, about an ax head that's lost and a man who's going to be in debt because of it and just needs some, he doesn't want to face financial ruin. And on the other side, let me summarize this story to you. You remember the Shunammite George talked to us about last week? This woman whom Elisha, she was childless and Elisha promised her a child and then she had the child and the child died and Elisha raised the child from the dead. And she was a really faithful servant of God. Well, as part of, at the end of our stories today, what happens is this Shunammite has been sent to a foreign land to live with the Philistines because there was gonna be a famine in Israel. And so Elisha says, go and live in another land for a little while. She comes back after seven years and it is the most mundane story about property ownership because she comes back and somebody else is living on her land and she says, I need my land back. And the king says, okay, you can have your land back. That's the story, right? Now, why does God take the time to put these two stories bookending around these national level events. I mean, if you and I were probably just picking which story is gonna make the biggest impact, you'd probably pick the ones with the chariots of fire and the armies around the cities and people fleeing from the power. Yes, would you agree? Not God. He goes, let me, let me just put these two in here. Why are they there? They're there to show us that God is not so busy with the big stuff that he doesn't care about the small stuff. He's not so busy with national level, global level events that he doesn't care about one poor prophet who needs an ax head recovered from a river. And so he brings it about. Now, in some sense, these events are all there to show us that Elisha is God's servant. He is God's prophet. And that's one of the things that is testified to by Elisha's ability to make poisonous stew, not poisonous anymore. I mean, he does all these little acts. But the thing I want you to see is the placement of this story is so key and strategic. It's one of the reasons it's really important to, lead, to read broadly in Scripture and not just, not just little snippets because you would miss the flow of the text and how these stories are, what they're there for if you didn't read them in, the conjunction, in conjunction with these big stories. You see, they're there primarily to teach us that God cares about the small details of our life. He is not too busy when you go to him with the smallest nuance of your life he is not inconvenienced by that. He cares for you. He doesn't go, I can't believe they're bothering me with this again. Don't they know that I'm busy upholding the universe right now? Don't they know that I've got wars that I'm trying, that I'm not trying, that I'm working out my purposes through? Don't they know 
that I am making the earth spin around the sun. And that's a big task, all right? He's not inconvenienced by you. He receives you. That's what I want you to see here. So let me ask a self-examination question before, again, we move on to the main thrust of our text, which is about the power of God to save. The self-examination question is just this, a reflection question is, do you believe God cares? Do you believe God cares for you? That's a very simple question, I know. And you might, your knee-jerk reaction might be to say, yeah, of course, of course I do. But friends, can I just remind you that that belief is prone to ebb if we don't reinforce it. And if you don't take time to actually examine your heart and say, do I still believe that you care for me? You may find as you go to examine and look in your heart and look in your mind and ask the spirit to do that examining work, you may find that that, that belief that God cares for you has begun to ebb and you just haven't realized it. You've begun to maybe not be so convinced that he cares for you. And that's why this reminder is here for us today because we need to be reminded. Would you agree with that? We need to be reminded. Look, it, it, you know, what kind of a marriage is it where a husband and wife never say, I care for you or love you and just say, well, they know I, know, I don't need to remind them. If you did that for 50 years, my guess is you would recognize your marriage might not be that healthy. Fair enough? Daily reminders, in fact, are a good idea. Daily, I love you. Daily, I care about you. Daily, I treasure you. Daily, you mean so much to me. And God is reminding us of that today. Now, here's one of the reasons that's so important is because one, I, I don't think you can move on to the message about his power to save you from your difficult circumstances unless you believe he cares for you. It's just, yes, you have power, but you don't care to use it. And it's also what happens is as we begin to, and here's an indicator that your, your belief, your conviction that God cares for you has begun to ebb a little bit. It's not flowing, it's ebbing. One of the indicators is you stop talking to him as much because that's what we do. When we don't think someone cares for us, we pull back, we pull away, we withhold, we stop that dialogue going forward. And let me just say, in order to receive the care God wants to give you, you need to be talking to him. You need to be going to him. You need to be seeking him out. You need to be saying, show me that you care for me. And watch what he will do to show you that. Not unlike this prophet who just needed an ax head recovered from the river. So friends, that's crucial. And as in all things, we see how the text points us to Jesus. Can I just remind us of this? The cross of Jesus is the great evidence of God's care for you. Never get tired of remembering that in the same way that this is a, a small expression of care, it points us to remind us the ultimate expression of care, always and forever, is that God on high took on humanity and hung on a cross for us, for your sins and for mine. We sang, he came to save this hell-bound man. Remember that when you doubt that he cares because he has shed blood in order to show you he cares. At great cost to himself, he cares. Go back again and again to the treasure of the cross of Jesus. It is the great evidence of his love for us, the love of the Father, the love of the Son. Right, now having heard that, and I pray received it, let's move forward. Let's learn some lessons about God's power to save. And I wanna, I'm gonna read a pretty long section here 
for us. And these stories are fantastic. They're so rich. Two stories. We can derive lessons from them about what it looks like when we believe in God's power to save and what it looks like when we don't. So picking up in verse eight of chapter six, we find this. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants saying, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, beware that you do not pass this place for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? One of his servants said, none, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, go and see where he is that I may send and seize him. Do you see the irony of the story that Elisha knows what the king says in his bedroom and the king has no clue where Elisha is? It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent their horses and chariots and a great army and they came by night and surrounded the city. If the scriptures had sound effects, this would be the dun, dun, dun moment, right? When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid. Here's the key for understanding the story. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. This is a little Keystone Cops routine here. Okay, we'll follow you, sure. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria as soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, you shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. All right, so that's the end of that story. I'm just gonna keep going to the next one though because they have the same theme. What we're gonna find now is the Syrians didn't come again on raids, but they did come with their whole army. So here's what happens next. Afterward, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. And there was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it. There had been a famine in the land. It was, a, it was gonna be a seven-year famine. And now the city had been relatively unaffected by it, but now they're surrounded, so they can't get goods and services. So now they're feeling the effects of the, of the famine. They besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for eight shekels of silver. That's more than I pay for my donkey heads. And the fourth part of a cab of dove's dung, that's gross, I don't buy that, for shekels of silver, for five shekels of silver. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, help my Lord, O king. 
And he said, if the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? In other words, there's no food and there's no wine. And the king asked her, what is your trouble? She answered, this woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. On the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard the words of the woman, he tore his clothes. Now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath on his body. And he said, now this is interesting. Look at this reaction. May God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king had dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door and hold the door fast against him. It's not the sound of his master's feet behind him. And while, we, while he was still speaking with him, the messenger came down to him and said, this trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. Tomorrow about this time, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seas of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. In other words, food will become cheap. It'll be in such large supply. Then the captain on whose hand the king leaned said to the man of God, if the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But he said, you shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance of the gate, and they said to one another, why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, and we shall die there. And if we sit here, we die also. So now come, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live, and if they kill us, we shall die, but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians, but when they came to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the army of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots and of horses, the sound of a great army, so that they said to one another, behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight and abandoned their tents, their horses, and their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was and fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went into a tent and ate and drank and they carried off silver and gold and clothing and went and hid them. Then they came back and entered another tent and carried off things from it and went and hid them. Okay, let me summarize what happens then. The lepers return to the city. They let everybody know. Some scouts go out. They check it out. They find it's true. The Syrians have fled. And then the people all rush out to get the goods. And when they're rushing out, the captain who had denied God's power is trampled to death as they go to get the food. And it says, in fulfillment of the word of the Lord, the food was sold for the amount that the Lord said it would be sold for. Okay, so those are our two, two major stories in today's text, and they help illustrate five lessons for us about what it looks like when we believe or don't believe in the power of God to save. So the first of those lessons is this. The first is, or the question for us to reflect upon, is do I remember that no earthly power is a threat to God? Do I remember that no earthly power is a threat to God? Now, this is the main message of both of these stories is that God, without human help, is never under threat. There is no army surrounding any city that ever causes God to say, oh, gee, what am I gonna do, right? He is perfectly powerful. Now, here's the ways we see that in the story. In the first story with the chariots of fire, here's the thing that you need to see 
and perhaps you miss as you read through this story. Elisha's servant isn't at first able to see what Elisha sees. The army has come, they've surrounded the city, and Elisha says these words, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And that's the key for understanding because you might expect that the next thing that would happen is that Elisha, instead of praying for the army to be blinded, he would pray for the heavenly armor, uh, the heavenly army to go into action and defeat the Syrian army. That would make a lot of sense, right? Does the army get used at all? No, never. The army's just there, the army of chariots and horses, of, you know, uh, chariots of fire. Why is it there? It's there so that Elisha's servant will see that God is stronger than the Syrian army. He has an army greater and more powerful. In other words, I'm not threatened by them. Then God chooses to show mercy by blinding them, leading them into Samaria, and then releasing them. See, the point of the story is not God's gonna slay the Syrian army. The point of the story is God's power is not under threat, which is why the center of that story is that one line, Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The second story is the same point repeated in a different way. How did God defeat the Syrian army in the second story as they surround Samaria? And by the way, now the first one happened quickly. Is the second one happening quickly or slowly? Slowly, which is helpful to us because one deliverance is quick and one deliverance is slow, reminding us that sometimes God's timing is different in different scenarios, in different circumstances. Can you see that? But then what does he do? Does he say, I'm gonna send out 100 Israelites and we're gonna defeat them, 100 versus 10,000, here we go. He's done that before, he could do it again. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He sends them away with no human help. The emphasis of that story is God doesn't need your help to defeat this army. He is powerful all by himself. His power is never under threat. So that's the first sort of two, that's the gem kind of in both of these stories. Now, let me ask then, or make this statement. No matter how great the difficulty that you or I face, we have to keep reminding ourselves that it is not beyond the power of God. It's so important, friends, when we talk about believing in the power of God, trusting in the power of God to save us, The longer we wait for deliverance, the easier it is to begin to minimize the power of God in our own minds and in our own hearts. So we have to keep repeating it. We have to keep saying, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Over and over and over, reminding ourselves of the power of God, being the messengers who proclaim it to one another. And I just would encourage you, friends, to also catch this. There's a reason it doesn't say those who are for us. It says those who are with us. In other words, right there with us in our, you know, caring about us. So it's another message of care. Now, the second question to help us ask ourselves, do I believe in the power of God to save? Am I trusting in it functionally? If the first is, do I remember that there's no earthly power, that no earthly power is a threat to God? Then the second one is, do I remember that God's power is active even when I don't see it? That's the second question to ask. Do I remember that even when I don't see God's power moving, it, is not, it does not mean that God is idle, but that God is moving. And here we learn this from the servant of Elisha, right? He comes out, he sees the, the Syrian army, and like any human being, he panics. 
because this is a massive army. They surrounded the city. He's not sure what they're going to do. And Elisha never panics because he has eyes to see something that the servant cannot see. And so what does he do? He says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And then he sees that they are not alone. In fact, that they are not outnumbered. They outnumber the Syrians. So friends, here's the lesson from that. And it's just simply this. It's, do I remember not just that God's power is not under threat, but that God is moving even when I don't see it? Do you know that? God is moving even when I don't see it. By the way, there's a great lesson here for us too as a point of application that it's really helpful to have people who pray that we would have eyes to see it. We need people praying for us all the time. God, help them see that you are at work even though right now they cannot see it. Have you felt like you couldn't see God at work at times? Yes? You need to recruit people to pray, God, help them to have their eyes open. Listen, Hebrews chapter one, verse three, gives us a great example of this when it says this, talking about Jesus and he's greater than the angels. The author of Hebrews says, he, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, he's God in the flesh. And then what does he say next? And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Can I remind you right now that Jesus is causing the sun to stay in the sky right now? Jesus is causing the earth to spin, the stars to shine. He is the one causing the breath to go in and out of your lungs right now. He is sustaining and upholding the universe. You may not see it or think about it. Does that mean he's not doing it? No, my friends, he is at work always. And whatever that circumstance or thing in your life right now that you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting, do not believe for a second that your waiting means that he is idle. He is not idle. He is at work right now. You need to cling to that belief. It will further entrench your trust in his power if you remind yourself and have people praying over you that you would have eyes to see that he is not standing by doing nothing. And now you see why believing he cares is so important too, yes? He cares and he is not idle. I always think of this story from my own life when I think about this. I think Amanda recalls it too. Uh, she and I, when we dated, we dated for five months. We were engaged for five months and then we were married because you know when you get a woman of that quality, you move quickly, all right? Before she realizes, uh, <laughs> right? So here's the deal. She had some tough decisions to make about a, a job situation and a living situation. Like, do I sign the lease? Do I not sign the lease? And we're both sensing where this is going. Now, here's the thing. I had already talked to dad, you know, already talked to the father-in-law, already bought the ring, all right? It's in the dresser. It's waiting for the day. I've got a plan. And I've taken into consideration when she needs to know about the lease and the job and all those kinds of things. And so we had a conversation one night on one of our dates where you just see the, rightly, the nervousness. The, I, I just don't know. And she's trying not to say like, are, are you gonna tell me what you're gonna do here? She's just trying to say like, I, you know, I gotta make these choices and I just don't know. And, I, and I'm just thinking, well, she doesn't want me to ruin the surprise. Like, well, the ring's in the drawer, here you go. You know, and, so there's this whole elaborate plan and it has to get played out. So I'm at work even though you don't see it. And so what I, not to compare myself to the Lord in this scenario, but <laughs> I was making all these plans. I had, all, I had considered all of it. And in that moment, all I, all I was able to say to her was, I just, I would, let me just encourage you, trust 
that I see all those details and we will know what we need to know in the time in which we need to know it. I don't know, I think it helped, it helped, right? Yeah, it helped. She trusted me, right? And it did, it all played out. But the point of that, right, is like, I always think about that when I think, yeah, God was moving me along, carrying me along, and he was considering, not just me, the Lord had shown me to consider those details in the timeline so that all was taken care of in the time that it needed to be taken care of. God is not inactive, he is not idle. Right? He is at work. Now, the third question that is so helpful to us in terms of um, really in reinforcing our trust in the power of God to deliver is, do I see the consistency of God? Do I see the consistency of God? Did you notice how did, like, think about all the things God could have done. He didn't use the heavenly army. So you have to ask, well, why are they even there? Like, if, why didn't he just skip the army and have Elisha just say, hey, servant, don't worry about it. Watch this. Blind them, Lord. And they were blinded. And then Elisha walks out. I mean, the army's kind of superfluous. Do you see what I'm saying? The army is there to reinforce to the servant that God has got this. His power is greater. But what did the army look like? It was chariots of fire. Where have we seen chariots of fire before? Elijah was taken into heaven by chariots of fire. What do you think Elisha and his servant would have seen when they saw those chariots? They would have immediately gone, this is the God of Elijah, and he is with us in the same way that he was with Elijah. In other words, the same God who's delivered before is right here again and delivering in the same way, rescuing in the same way, bringing redemption in the same way. Now listen, God is able to do new things in our lives. There's no doubt about it. And he does. He does new things in our lives. But one of the things that's so helpful is to remember that God is so often, in his kindness, consistent in the way he works in our lives so that we recognize him. In the way that Elisha and his servant could recognize this is God because we've seen this before, God does that in our lives. I can tell you there are ways in which God is so regular with me when I'm needing his guidance, needing his delivering power, there are these things that he tends to do. For me, one of those is as I'm reading the scripture, he will cause something almost in a visual way to leap off the page to me and then it will not go away for days on end. I'm like, okay, this is something you are telling me. You are putting this in front of me, right? We know that he's always consistent with his word, amen? Always, without failure, consistent with his word, and then also so many times consistent in the ways he works in our lives as individuals and as families. So look for that. Look for the themes. And it's di- it can be different in different ones of us. Some of you, he may grant dreams. Some of you, he will do what he does, as I've said with me, where you know, he's indicating something through his word in such a powerful and clear way. Some of you, it will be that there's, Financial provision always just right at the right time. And you go this, yep, one more time. God has done it. <laughs> one more time. You know, like look for those themes of consistency and it reinforces your sense, not just of his care, but also of his power to bring about what he wants to bring about in the time in which he wants to bring about it. So listen, friends, your trust in God's power to save is increased when you look for those consistent ways. Now we're kind of moving into the second, the, the next story now, last two lessons, and they're more on the negative side, but listen to these because the, the number four 
lesson about do I trust God's power to save is do I keep doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord? Now, this is a theme we return to again and again because the scriptures return to it again and again. When we're waiting, will we keep doing what's right? And the great tragic story in the text that we read is the two women who sacrificed their own children. And do you see that the, the real great tragedy of that is that they would have been delivered the next day the next day food was provided, but they wouldn't wait. Now listen, they were dire circumstances. Do we all agree? Dire circumstances. But here's what you and I need to know. It would have been better for them to die in righteousness than to live in wickedness. It is always better to die in righteousness than to live in wickedness. And so often we take shortcuts because we think it's the only way out. Friends, there is always for us a necessity of having this conviction to walk in righteousness and to, even if it ends tragically, is better for me than to live by my own hand in wickedness. It's a tragic story inserted in the middle here. And it's so important that we see this. So the question then is, do I keep doing what's right no matter how desperate the circumstances And friends, listen, this is like, it's a kind of a cute little, I mean, the story's not cute at all, but it sounds, it can sound like one of these cute little cliche, like almost a bumper sticker sorts of things. It's like, yeah, understand, like you have to have this conviction buried deep inside of you because when it comes and it hurts and it's hard, it's real easy to do what's wicked, to deliver myself. It's real easy and it's real hard to stay in the waiting real hard. This isn't just a display that I trust in God's power to save, that I do what's right. It's also because it builds my trust in that power. Now, the last lesson that we learn is, do I lash out at those who are speaking God's voice into my life? If you find that you're, I mean, just ask yourself, when's the last time I lashed out at someone? And ask, was I lashing out at them in anger, angry words, angry, overflowing emotions towards them, maybe in my thoughts towards them? Was I lashing out because they were trying to be the voice of God in my life? Because they were trying to represent his truth and his care and his direction in my life. You see, that's what the king does here, right? He's surrounded and it's such an interesting response when he hears what has happened with these women, he says, I'm gonna cut off Elisha's head. Well, that's a weird response. The text doesn't give us any indication that Elisha had anything to do with what was happening. He just recognizes that Elisha has an audience with God, and so he's angry at Elisha because he's angry with God. Now, being God's voice, being God's instrument, will mean this will happen in your life. Do you know that? It will mean that at times speaking on behalf of God will mean those who get angry at God will get angry at you and they will lash out. But the thing is, if we find ourselves lashing out, the question is recognizing, I'm, I'm one, that I'm directing it at the wrong place, right? But the second thing is what's, what becomes so evident is when the servant, the captain goes to the door and he's going to take Elisha in, What does he say? He speaks the king's words and he says, I will not wait for the Lord any longer. In other words, I'm coming to kill you because I'm done with the Lord. I'm done waiting on him. I'm gonna turn my attention elsewhere. I'm gonna look for salvation 
elsewhere. And that is a grand mistake. So listen, one indicator that I'm not trusting God's power to save me is if I'm lashing out at those who would speak God's truth to me, who would, God has placed in my life to give me his direction. Friends, I just think about that because to lash out in that way is to fail to trust in the power of God. So now listen, as we looked at God's care, we see that it's the cross of Jesus, the great expression of that care. We began our service today by singing about the resurrection of Jesus, and that was intentional, because here's what I wanna say to you. If the cross of Jesus is the great indicator of his care, the resurrection is the great indicator of his power. Never get tired And it's not a cliche. I worry sometimes that because we refer to it over and over again, that there's this sense in which it's like, yeah, you're just giving God an excuse. Yes, he's resurrected Jesus. And yes, I'll be resurrected in the end, but I need deliverance now. So you're just placating me or just giving God an excuse for not delivering me now. And friends, it's not a cliche and it's not placation. It is the truth that God has raised Jesus. That resurrecting power is active now and he will deliver us in the end. I cannot promise you or guarantee you that God will deliver you from your earthly troubles before you die. I cannot promise you. I pray that he will, but I cannot promise you that he will. But what I know is that when you draw your last breath, if you believe in Jesus, the power of his resurrection will be fully unveiled to you. And you will live forever in a sinless existence without pain or grief. There will be no more mourning, no more tears, no more crying, no more pain. All will be gone and all will be right because you are in Christ Jesus. And it's why Paul can say, without diminishing the great weight of the suffering that you might endure while you wait for the delivering hand of God, he can call those massive sufferings light and momentary in comparison with the eternal weight of glory that will be ours when the final deliverance guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus, will come. So I just, like I said, I I worry that sometimes in the midst of our hurt, that we think that is not enough. And let me just tell you, there is no other remedy. There is no other remedy. There is no other hope. That is the hope. It is resurrection power that may deliver you temporarily, but will deliver you eternally without exception and without failure. Place your hope there. See it again. The cross of Jesus declaring his great love for you, the resurrection of Jesus declaring his great power towards you, and that is the tool we go to again and again to be reminded, to remember, and to grow our trust that God's power to save is absolute. It's not threatened by earthly powers. He is is at work whether I see it or not. My job is to not shrink back, but to do what is right and call upon him and wait for him and trust him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you that your power is perfect. And we pray again, Lord Jesus, for those of us who are waiting for a deliverance right now that is yet to come. We pray that you give us eyes to see the ways you are showing your care now in the small details of life like you did with that prophet and the ax head. 
We pray that you would help us to see those small things so that we could wait in the big ones. We pray that you would remind us that you are not indifferent towards us, but that you care. Reestablish our conviction about your power again today, that we might walk in confidence of it. And now, Lord, because we believe that, our desire is to turn to you in praise. That's what it evokes in us, a desire to give you praise. So would you receive it from hearts that are full, having received the meal, the food that is your word now. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.